Welcome to County Before Country Season 3. This season comes from our 2023 conference, which mostly focused on planting churches and starting schools. We changed up the format a little bit, added a men's and women's breakout session, had very focused panels, have some new speakers, and the audio is much, much better than last season. This first episode is from a session I did to open the conference on what a church is and isn't. Good evening, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a chance to gather as, as your church. Lord, we think it's a beautiful reality that you've dispersed us throughout this nation and little congregations. And every Sunday when we sing, we're united in one voice, praising one Lord under one baptism in one church. We praise you for that. Father, we thank you that we can gather now as a a united body to, to worship you, to fellowship, to build each other up, to challenge each other, to rebuke each other, to encourage each other, to equip each other, to stir each other up to good works for your glory. We praise you for this. Spirit, be with us. Father, be blessed. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm not going to exposit this passage, but uh, the reason I wanted to read it real quick is that uh, this is, at a conference, you, you do lectures, you do talk sometimes. On Sunday, uh, you should really be expositing the Word, you should be exegeting the Word, but sometimes it's good to talk about strategy and, and more practical stuff. So, uh, I just want to make it very clear, we know that it's Jesus who gives the growth. We know that it's Jesus who plants the church. We know that the only way you'll ever have any victory in church planning or starting schools or anything is if the Lord is in it. And Christ will build his church. And we know that. We thank God for that. So that's the overarching assumption that we have at this conference. But we have three uh, sessions on church planning and then a panel on it. And then we have sessions that are a little more on building other institutions and a panel on starting schools. So I decided I'd go a little different direction. I don't really know what Garrett or Michael exactly is going to teach, so I'm trying to not like walk on their territory. Uh, So what I want to talk about is the necessity of the institution of the church and what a church is and a church isn't. So let's start this way. Institutional trust is low. It may be at an all-time low in America, and mistrust has been earned by these institutions. We've seen massive abdication, overreach, and just widespread failure across the board. And that's why so many people just want to escape to leave the country. I hear about people that want to go to Costa Rica um, who clearly have not been to Costa Rica, um, or just go hide out in some beautiful mountain retreat. Some years ago, my wife is evidence of this. Uh, I got obsessed with yurts. You know what yurts are? (laughs) Oh, man. The CIA, as they're like looking over my internet history, was like, what's with this guy in yurts? Right? Trying to figure out why I was so obsessed with them. They're just really cool. They're like these semi-permanent tents that like uh, Mongolians or sheep herders used to use. And you can set them up. And I used to imagine, I'll buy a bunch of yurts for our family. And we'll put them out in the woods around some lake somewhere, and we'll just get away from the chaos. I'm, that was like 2008, 2009, during the Great Recession, and it felt like uh, if you're in certain industries that your life was falling apart. Uh, so I get, I get the temptation. Here's the issue, though. 
Uh, there are man-made institutions. Those you can be done with at some level. But there are also God-ordained institutions. Those you cannot be done with. Not if you fear God. Not if you trust God. He made them for his glory and our good. That's part of his design. All authority comes from God. He's sovereign. <clears throat> He's almighty. He reigns over all. Uh, only God's authority is absolute and unquestionable. But God is a God of means. He works out his eternal purpose through providence and the creation or the works of creation. And he's delegated his authority to three institutions, the church, the civil magistrate, which you call the state or government, and the family or a household. So church, government, family. So uh, some say there are more, right? People can always make things more complicated, but none say there are less. So I'm just going to stick with these three institutions for simplicity. And by institution, I simply mean an establishment. Uh, that which is appointed, prescribed, or founded by authority and intended to be permanent, right? It's intended to be permanent, lasting. And we see the institution of the household or family established in the command to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1. And then that's uh, joined together uh, with the establishment of marriage in Genesis 2. So normally speaking, you know, institution of marriage produces children, which makes a household, and households make households, and a bunch of households create society, I'd argue that you see the institution of the church, at least in a nascent uh, sense, established in Eden. So God uh, gave mankind commands, right? The creation mandate, do this, and also the uh, prohibition to take from the tree of knowledge and good evil. Don't do that. So there's a law, there's a word, and there's actually a sacrament. I would argue anyhow, and so would all the reformers, but if you disagree, that's okay. Um, In the tree of life. I see the tree of life as a life-giving sacrament. And then he also provided them with a special place of fellowship in, in uh, Eden, the garden, right? So the garden of Eden is a garden inside of Eden. Eden's like a district, and there's a garden that God plants there. And a lot of times we, you hear people say that, you know, the first job ever was a gardener. Uh, no, it wasn't. Adam well, kept God's temple, right? It's a garden temple uh, Maybe a good place to start on that is Greg Beal. He's written some stuff on that. I'm sure James Jordan has some really wild stuff on there. Um, but, But anyway, you see it right there. You see the special place of fellowship. So there's a word, there's a sacrament, and there's a special gathering place of fellowship. It's the church. It's the beginning of the church. Gathering together around word and sacrament has always been part of existence. Always. Even from the beginning. And then we see the beginning of government, and this is where some people disagree. Luther would see government not starting pre-fall, and it's actually pretty common for people to say that. But I see it, at least in an administrative management sense, uh, under the rulership of mankind over creation. It, we are to rule and reign, to organize, to build, to plot out. And that's, that's more of a sort of governing sense. And the reason I think that's uh, also there is that when... The, uh, the creation mandate is restated in Genesis 6 to Noah. What does it join to it? Well, it joins punishment for murder. In Genesis 9, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So you see the beginning of uh, pu- the punitive nature of government being brought together. So you see all three of these institutions in the earliest chapters of Scripture, established by God himself. Hence, the family Church and state are God-ordained institutions. Each of these institutions' authority is limited to a particular domain. That's why they're different, right? If if you just wanted to make one, he could have. But they're particular. And it would be an act of rebellion towards God uh, for one institution to usurp the role given to another. So they each have their particular domains. They overlap in some sense. But to usurp that domain is an act of rebellion. So an institution's authority is binding to its subjects only in so much that it is in accord with God's word. In other words, all authority must and can only be lawfully exercised according to the purpose for which God has delegated. Think of it this way. God has given the keys of the kingdom to the church. That's the church's business. That's why when they tell us not to worship, the government says that, I can just tell them to get lost, right? Uh, God has given the rod to the family. It is the parents' uh, responsibility to discipline their kid. The rod clearly means spankings, but it also means raising them up in a formative way. 
teaching them. That's your job. It's not the job of the church to raise your kids. It's the job of the church to help you raise your kids, to be a supplement of it. Right now, I got people saying, don't you think the church should be teaching people how to shoot guns? No, I don't think that. No. What are you talking about? But in the, in the Revolutionary War, uh, and he's given the sword to the civil magistrate. They punish sin. That's their job, right? Batman's a psychopath. It's crazy. Now, the government should be doing that. The authority of institutions, however, they'll overlap with each other at certain points because every person is in some way a subject of each institution, right? Some people might think, what about non-believers? They're not, uh, they're not a subject of the church. Yes, they are, right? I look at them and say, you are outside of the house of God. You're outside of the family of God. You are cursed. So in that way, we, we proclaim something over them. So they do have a relationship to us, namely that they need to repent and be born again. Consider this example. Let's say you have a 14-year-old communicant member in a church. So communicant meaning that they've been brought to the table. They're taking the Lord's Supper. And he steals like a dirt bike or something, and he gets caught. The magistrate will deal with the criminal aspect of the sin. Not the church, not the family. They are involved, but the sword isn't given to those institutions. Where we see churches get in a lot of trouble, especially when it comes to sexual sin. I'm a mandatory reporter. I'm not, I'm gonna, if, if I find out about sexual abuse, I have to, by law, report that. I think that's good. I don't think that's a bad thing, and I'm gonna do it. Uh, it's not my job to play, uh, you know, law or law and order, okay? Uh, But I do have a role in it. So the elders of the church with this 14-year-old boy must decide that he should be put under church discipline. Maybe he should be suspended from table fellowship and not take the Lord's Supper for some time. Maybe admonishment will do it. That was stupid, right? Now you're going to jail for a while. You should repent. Stop that. Sometimes I'll get it done. Regardless, it'll be the church that makes that decision, not the family, not the magistrate. Right? That is not the family's power to decide what the church will do when it comes to a member of the church. It's not going to. Don't overstep your bounds. The state's not going to tell us. You know, Calvin, Calvin's biggest battle. Uh, there's a great book, uh, Calvin's Company of Pastors. Uh, the magistrate was always messing with them on who he could excommunicate and with the Lord's table. And there was this debate early before he went and was under Booster in Strasbourg, where it was, I believe, over bread. And I can't remember if it was leaven or unleavened, but he wanted the opposite of what they had, and he was fighting with them. And then uh, when he came back, they said, oh, you can have uh, what he was asking for. So what does Calvin do? He demands the opposite, right? Here's why. Stay out. What do you have to do with deciding what sort of elements we use government Right? So you got to love Calvin's contrary nature. You know what? I think I'm going to go with leavened bread. Right? Well, no, you can, have, you can have leavened bread. I'll go with unleavened bread. Just, I just need you to know. Stay in your lane. And still, his father, this young man, must decide how he will deal with his son's waywardness. The church or even the magistrate can make recommendations to the father and say, here's things I think you should consider. And the sheriff can say that. But What actions he takes are ultimately his decision. That's his realm of authority. Dad must decide to do that. We saw this fail massively with Josh Duggar, if you know that story. right? It was a massive failure of sphere sovereignty. Much trouble comes from institutions neglecting the legitimate authority of other institutions. And much trouble comes from institutions overreaching into domains and responsibilities which God has not given to them. The natural family, it's the biological family, the family that is made uh, through the union of a man or woman or, or adopted into the natural family isn't a replacement for the particular church, for a local church. The particular church isn't a replacement for the natural family. The civil magistrate isn't a replacement for the particular church or the natural family. The particular church and the natural family isn't a replacement for the civil magistrate. We mustn't collapse these institutions into each other, but neither can we fully separate what God has made interdependent. Right? They work together. And there's always this desire to take them and 
either make them all one. I don't know how often I've heard the original institution was the family and that's all we have to get back to. Wrong. Wrong. If you've been listening to people that's teaching that stuff from Reformed, they're calling that Reformed doctrine, they have departed from that tradition. And I'd say they've departed from Scripture and so much destruction comes from that. We can't collapse them, but we can't fully separate them, right? They're, they, they, they're symbiotic. It's a major error to think of these institutions as a series of concentric circles, right? Circle, 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 right? Um, that have a greater priority over one another. They're all important. You know, a lot of people will tell you, they always like try to force, if you have to have this or that, which one would you choose? Well, it's a false dilemma in this case, right? So when someone creates a false dilemma, just say that's like asking like, would you choose a square circle or a, you know, a circle square? Like, it's unintelligible. Just don't, uh, don't listen to the question and move on. Say, I'm not answering. It's a bad question. You shouldn't have to choose between these things. And generally, at least in this country for the moment, you don't have to on the whole. Many hyper-patriarchal types. So I wrote a book, and that means I get emails from guys about weird stuff every day of my life. That's what it means. Pastor Foster, I have a question. It's just like pages. Are you getting these yet? Pages. Like, my goodness, man. Then sometimes I'll send a voice message I'll, I'll do it in a one-minute voice message on Facebook. And I'm like, okay, here's what I think really quick. Here's what you should do with your life, you know? <laughs> and then go back. And then it's like, bing, 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 bing. It's like 20 minutes of voice messages. So I've been in this circle for a bit. And I love, I love patriarchy. It is God's system. It's what the Bible teaches. I'm not ashamed of it. But good things can be twisted. And there is such thing as hyper-patriarchalness. And if you don't know, give it a little time. And you will know, or perhaps... This applies directly to you. Many hyperpatriarchal types absolutize the father's authority and make the family central and subordinate, if not outright rejects, the rightful authority of the church. The church has real authority. Guys that are obsessed with authority but won't submit to authority. What do you call that? A tyrant. Usually a small man. The family is not central. Many liberals absolutize the civil magistrate. That's their God. And in doing so, create a religious nanny state that overreaches and uh, interferes both with the family and church. But we all agree on that one. I hope so. If not, welcome to East River. It's amazing that you're here. Let's talk afterwards. The state is not central. Many churches, be they liberal or conservative, absolutize the authority of elders and make spirit, the spiritual primary in all regards. Why have we seen that? Guys that never talked about authority, the moment you actually wanted to gather for worship without a mask, suddenly they're like Cartman from South Park, right? Submit to my authority. It was crazy. These, these weak, nice guy, beta male pushovers suddenly are talking about authority every Sunday. It's crazy. I'll come back to that. But the church in this sense is not central. In that sense, it's not central. It's not a series of concentric circles, but rather a Venn diagram, right? Circle, circle, circle. With God, a sovereign king at the center, the Lord is central. He is the king and he works through delegated authority. So these institutions shouldn't compete with one another. They're symbiotic. A strong church means a, a strong family and a just government. Strong families will lead to growing churches and see society with well-trained citizens. And strong but not overreaching government will keep the family and church strong by protecting it from criminal elements, by praising the good and punishing the evil. They're supposed to work together. Now, here's the rub. Each institution will pick up the slack when one or both of the other institutions uh, fail in a right exercise of authority over their given domain. This is something like the law of conservation of energy. It states that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Energy can only be transferred or changed from one form to another. 
so it is with authority. If the family fails to fulfill its duties, then the church or the state will be moved to step in and meet those needs and vice versa. Now, I'm not saying that's what they should do. I'm just saying that's what they will do, right? So if dad abdicates and he leaves, then his mom stuck with a 14-year-old stealing dirt bikes all the time. Are not the elders going to get involved to help that woman with their son and say, hey, how can we help you? So they're in there now playing a role that they're not really designed to. They're becoming more fathers than fatherly, right? And then the magistrate's got to get involved because the kid's breaking laws. And so what happens, what happens is when you have decades of the family and church abdicating the responsibilities, and we have, now there's all sorts of, we can talk about what's led to that, what's caused it, right? It certainly was deliberate from a spiritual sense, but probably from a political sense as well. So as that's happened, the government saw an opportunity or maybe felt a need to step in and gobble up all the authority God had dedicate, uh, delegated for those responsibilities. So they, they took the place of the family. They took the authority from it. And they, and they took the authority from the church. And now what do we have? Well, we got this nanny state that has control that it's not supposed to have. That's why as we build strong families, families are always a threat to a, a tyrannical government. You get enough strong families, they start to do stuff together, right? It's a real, is why they killed the firstborn of Israel, why Pharaoh did that. And doing something about this problem starts with the heads of households and churches taking back which, that which was delegated to them. Got to take it back. We take what was delegated to us, not to them. So we need to make homes and plant churches. And in an effort to raise up a well-discipled, educated society, we need to start schools. See, I worked at, that's the title of make, make homes, plant churches, start school. I worked it into my talk. So you know that's what's going on. So we need institutions. Uh, these first uh, sessions, again, are going to be on planting churches. And I don't know that most church plants these days are evenly propped or even properly churches. There's something else. They may involve components that you'd find in a biblical church. But there's a big difference between cheese and cheesecake. A biblical church has an irreducible minimum. In other words, there's a point where if you remove a, biblical, uh, a biblically required component, it can no longer uh, rightly be called a church. It may be on its way to becoming a church, or more often than not, on a way of departing being a church. But it's not a church yet a Bible study by itself is not a church. A prayer meeting by itself is not a church. A time of fellowship by itself is not a church. A building or gathering place, though necessary, is not a church. There is a tendency to approach church in a reductive ma uh, manner, to make it just about fellowship or teaching or some other biblical component. Or even worse, the entire mission of a church can get eclipsed by some other purpose, not central to God's design for the church. See that a lot. When the church is reduced to something like a YMCA, the pastors turn into a program coordinator. Congregation is taught to view the church as a provider of specialized programming that caters to all life stages and schedules. So YMCA has got yoga on Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights and all that. What, what, is your, what programs do your church offer me? Well, we start with public worship right now, every Sunday, no matter what. Snow, uh, tyrannical declarations, <laughs> we'll be here, okay? That's what we, what we focus on. I'm not saying that those programs in of themselves are wrong, but if the church becomes about uh, just giving these services uh, outside of worship, it can change the entire nature of the church. When the church is treated as a replacement for the natural family, and that's going on right now because there's so many broken families, I am not, I'm not people's dads unless you came from me, unless you kind of look like me, right? Unless I adopted you to my, I'm not your dad. Pastors are fatherly, right? Fathers are pastoral, but fathers aren't pastors and pastors aren't fathers in that sense. You got to keep that tension there. When the church is, um, I lost my place. When the church is treated as a, a replacement for the natural family, the pastor becomes a surrogate father instead of a shepherd of souls. The congregation is taught to confuse the limits and purposes of the natural household and the spiritual uh, family of church. That's how you get cults. I think there's just going to be a ton of cults 
ton of little mini cults where there's no boundaries, there's no proper limits of authority and delegation. And if you're around in the Reformed Church long enough, you'll, you've already seen this. Some of you have talked to me about it. I've seen it. They might be a little C cult and not as effective as other ones, but they, they blur the lines. When the church is reduced to a social action group, the pastor is reduced to a community organizer. The congregation is taught to subordinate primary doctrine to a derivative cause, right? So abortion, I hate it. I hate child slaughter. But the first mission of the church is word and sacrament. That's, why, that's what will power you in that fight. And there's some churches that become all, all about that. It could, be about, it could be about men's, right? Men's ministry or whatever. But the church is for all believers, men, women, old, young. You can become a social action group. When the church is reduced to a parachurch ministry, the pastor is reduced to a single-issue specialist. The congregation is taught to neglect the whole counsel of the word in favor of a single portion. I think that's what a lot of people want nowadays. And I'll come back to that in a second. When the church is reduced to discernment ministry, the pastor becomes an investigative journalist or the editor-in-chief of a paparazzi rag. And the congregation is taught, and I quote from Acts 17.21, to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. It's Twitter, right? Did you hear about this ministry, this controversy? Right? Isn't it wonderful to not know things? One of my favorite things in life is not knowing what people are talking about. Have you heard about this thing? Oh, dude, it's so crazy. And I get to say, no, I haven't. And then there's just nothing, there's no extra weight in my head. I can just go on my, there's, it's okay to not know about all the controversies going on in the world. It's crazy that everyone keeps up with these things. Don't you have responsibilities, like stuff to do? When the church is reduced to a media ministry, this is a temptation, one that I face. The pastor becomes a talking head or, God forbid, an influencer. Influence good, influencer, not my goal. So then what is a church? Well, you can understand the nature of a church in multiple senses. There's a general or universal church. It's the entire body of believers alive, everyone on this planet, church down the street, Church in Australia, they all belong to the general church. Uh, so think of the general church as a huge tree. Then there's the particular or local church, a particular local congregation of believers. You can think of those as branches or even more like twigs on the tree. While all believers belong to the general church, the big tree, that belonging or membership is expressed and lived out at a local level. To be in the general church is you have to be in a local church, normally speaking. Now, some of you have been walking with the Lord for years, and let's say you move and join a church. You are not joining the general church. You are just committing yourself to a particular visible branch of it. That's why we sometimes call that membership transfer. You're, not, you're just going from one part of the tree to another part of the tree. Sometimes we speak of the church in terms of visibility. The visible church is a church here on earth made up of those who profess faith and their children with them. Uh, I can see you, and you can see me. You can hear my profession of faith and vice versa. So we can, this is something tangible we can interact with. But not all who claim Christ as Lord or grow in Christian homes are truly believers. We know that. And we don't possess magical glasses that reveal who is and who isn't saved. So that's an invisible reality only known right now by the individual and the Lord. So the invisible church is made up of all true believers living and those who have gone before us to be with the Lord. To be in the invisible church, you must be born again. So by a church, we generally mean the visible local manifestation of the church in general. So that's what we're talking about. We're planting, when we plant churches, it's like we're planting a little twig off the tree. We're not starting a new tree, Right? It's just uh, uh, the tree growing out in some locale. So uh, in old Presbyterian language, that's called a particular church. Now, to get a little more specific, uh, there's what's called the Book of Church Order that Presbyterians have been using for a long time, and I am a Presbyterian, and I like it. 
And uh, it's a conference, it's not a Sunday, so I, I'm just going to quote from this. And you can go, you can debate if it's biblical or not, go check it out. But this is from, you can look at any BCO of any major Presbyterian denomination, and you're going to have the same definition. It's a little tactical, but helpful. A particular church consists of a number of professing Christians, so they have to profess Christ, with their children, associated together for divine worship and godly living, agreeable to scriptures, and submitting to the lawful government of Christ's kingdom. So they're associated together. So the membership in a church is a voluntary association where you say, these are my people, where I'm, I'm going to covenant here, I'm going to be here, and for a purpose, right? Divine worship, specifically getting together on the Lord's Day, and also godly living. So it's not just the Lord's Day, it's all of life, but it flows out of Sunday. It also has to be uh, instructed and in line with Scripture, and then submit to the lawful government. So generally speaking, that lawful government are the local elders and deacons in that church. And then sometimes you may uh, split that down into including uh, bishops and also pastors. Or, but ultimately, we're talking about elders and deacons and those that are uh, officers. They represent the church. Now, what are the main activities of the church? Again, this is from the Book of Church Order. The ordinances established by Christ the head in his church are prayer. Singing praises, reading, expounding, and preaching the word of God, administering the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, public solemn fasting and thanksgiving, catechizing, so using a question and answer, uh, it's kind of like FAQs for doctrine that you use to teach your kids what what the truth is of scripture, making offerings for the relief of the poor and for other pious uses, and exercising discipline, uh, taking solemn vows and the ordination to uh, sacred office. So, That's the work of the local church. That's the things that churches should be focusing on. Those are all good things. That's a whole lot of work right there. Teaching people how to catechize, that's hard. People think, I'm not a Roman Catholic. Why would I do that? You know? And so you have to take the time to explain that. But if the church does that work, that changes the congregation. And as the congregation is transformed by the ministry of the church, it changes the community. That's my fear is with a lot of the cultural warfare stuff is that um, we'll let the, the church kind of become secondary and we'll want the church to become everything that we're missing in society. And we need to keep the church the church. When we plant churches, that's what we're planting. And there, there's a real risk here. The work of the local church is the word and the sacraments, the word and the sacraments, week after week after week after week, never stopping. Everyone's going to try to pull you off of it, but you got to stick to it. Now, the real problem with pastors isn't that they teach the word and sacraments, is they don't apply it to where we're at. And you don't, it's, God just gives it to you. I remember um, we were having, uh, a previous church, we are having trouble with a member, and he was doing crazy stuff. And every Sunday, the text we came to was speaking to the nutty stuff he was doing. And I was like, should we preach it? It's going to seem like we planned this. And, and it's like, no, it's the Lord. And like, sometimes God does that. There's like a problem in your church that no one knows about. And then there's this text. And you're like, man, if I preach this, it's going to blow the whole thing up. But that's God's will sometimes. God likes a, right? He's a great destroyer. Sometimes there's a false peace, right? We call that quiet. Right. Some of the angriest tables I've been around were quiet. There was no peace, but there was quiet. There's a lot of quiet churches that need someone to drop a bomb sometimes. So if, as you work through scripture and you apply it to your people, to your time, all the issues come up. And each, each generation has different issues, right? Some, sometimes you're fighting with people about the deity of Christ or the triune nature of God or the nature of justification or liberalism like nation or whatever. Our time, we're fighting with uh, people over anthropology, what it means to be a man or a woman. We're also fighting over the nature of authority. People are super confused on authority, and that's why I've been going through the things I'm going. And it's very easy right now, I think, as we see all the chaos out there, to, to kind of become a single-issue church, right? And that can happen easier than you think. And um, so this is my second church plant. And in my first one, I uh, was out at a grocery store. I was at IGA doesn't exist anymore in uh, downtown Cincinnati, well, uptown Cincinnati. And uh, I was talking to someone and she said, oh yeah, you're the pastor of that home birth church, right? And I said, home birth church, what do you mean? 
you guys think everyone should have home births? And I said, uh, no. I was thinking in my head, I don't even like doing home births. Um, but so now how does a church become known as the home birth church? It's a lot easier than you think. Uh, our first church plant consisted of a bunch of 20-somethings and one couple in their 40s. As a rule, I'll tell you right now, if you're going to plant a church, generally uh, the bulk of your body is going to be at least five years younger than you. There's one reason it's really hard to plant a church uh, in your late 20s and 30s because it's just harder to get people that are peers and older than you to come to that. It's just sociological. So I was 27 or something like that, 26. So our church was like people that had just turned 20, 21. I'd always want to go get a beer with someone. I'm like, oh, I can't. I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> David Pryor. David Pryor still probably gets carded, though. He's, he's got the Michael J. Fox thing going on. Um, I do not. Uh, anyhow, uh, Emily and I had home birth with our first two kids. And uh, while we're playing that church, and I, uh, Emily uh, talked me into it. And uh, I'm happy I did it. Uh, so, <laughs> it's so gross. <laughs> so, soon a bunch of young couples got pregnant, and they asked us why we chose birth at home. And I'm, I made the logical case, not the emotional case. I did it for purely scientific reasons, okay? And we told them, and they were persuaded by it, and they followed suit. But we didn't care, right? That's how we became the home birth church, though. Because we had mostly young couples and those that were married and having kids all decided to do home births. And we had no position on birthing method. I still don't. And I don't want to see, when I ran a home birth website with some people, people used to always, would you like to see our birthing video? No. <laughs> I don't want to, I try not to remember. Um, we didn't care if you had your baby in the hospital, a birthing center, or in a pool in the middle of your living room, as we did. Scripture made no such requirements, and neither did we, or so we thought. Our people were really passionate about home birth. They did a lot of research, and they cared about it. But unintentionally, they came across as a church distinctive. Kind of at a cultural level, it really was. And per perception wasn't reality, but it was closer than it ought to have been. And it's very easy for a church to get known for and defined by one thing. Sometimes it's a misunderstanding. Most of the time, that reputation is earned. Matter of fact, churches are often planted as single-issue churches. There's a terrible liberal version of this, the open and uh, affirming church, and to I come, uh, the social justice church, the seeker-sensitive church, and so on. But there is also a conservative analog. You know, the classical education church, the pro-large family church, and even the pro-patriarchy church. And the latter is better in a sense, but both become problematic. A friend of mine gave me a helpful metaphor uh, on churches, and he said they're like diets. He said, you don't immediately feel the negative effect of a diet lacking in a particular nutrient. It takes time. So it is with the ministries that are lacking some element of spiritual life. You don't instantly feel it, but you do feel it. You feel it immediately with liberal hogwash, and the conservative versions take a little longer to set in. Sermons on biblical sexuality, the evils of abortion, the dangers of cultural Marxism are all refreshing if all you've had for a year is a diet of mere gospel centrality. That being said, straightforward gospel preaching is strengthening if all you've had for those years is a diet of practical Christian living sermons. Right? Practice is, springs forth from theology. It's rare you find them in the same church. How often do you find both? I remember when I was thinking about what denomination to join. I was looking for a simple confessional denomination that would interact with the issues of the day. And for the most part, it's like I can be with these people, and they're crazy, and they got their guns pointed the right way, but I think this is going to go a bad direction eventually if, they, if they're not anchored in, in doctrine. And over here, these people have doctrine, but they, they're unwilling to apply it. So it, it felt like choose your poison. Some people bounce from one church to the next in search of that thing that's missing from their diet. Churches know this. It's one of the big motivators behind why they plant single-issue churches. It's a reaction to a real need, but it also perpetuates this cycle. It's on and on and on. And we need to do our best to avoid being a reactionary church that's known for a single issue. 
we were uh, the anti-require a mass church, but we didn't want that. To, we didn't want to be known as that anti-mass church. When we were going through that whole COVID stuff, we let people know that we were open, word get out, that we didn't require masks or social distancing. <laughs> it was always funny when people would walk into the church with mask on. They would walk into the back, usually late during service, and they'd look around like this and like pull their masks down and like, oh, these are normal people. And, um, and, uh, but we didn't want to be defined by that because what we really were about is um, liberty of conscience, right? We were about uh, authority that's limited. That's, it was a, uh, a consequence of our commitments. And we, did, we didn't want to attract people that that's all they were about. We had a lot of those QAnon guys come around to I compared QAnon to the false prophets of Jeremiah. I can explain it to you afterwards if you like. Um, and so we lost some of those people. And we weren't purposely going after it, but it was getting crazy. And uh, they wanted us to be the MAGA church. Did I vote for Trump? I did. Is that what my sermon's going to be about? No. If you want that, leave. Right? Uh, but uh, we were against evil. We were against the evil today. And we were trying to do, do the best stuff. But we didn't want the cultural stuff to replace the mission of the church. So we need to do our best to avoid being reactionary. And that being said, there will be focuses that might be particular to our church due to the needs of the day. The goal isn't to plant a church that, that some lukewarm, down the middle, above the fray on everything. I don't trust any pastor who doesn't step in it, at least occasionally, right? At least occasionally. He goes off script and he gets honest for a moment in a sermon. And then all the emails gone. I don't actually have that here. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I love my people. Um, they, they give me a lot of a lot of room to be bold. But I, you, we're not trying to be balanced on everything. Sometimes being balanced on everything, like being faithful gets your head cut off, right? You can't always be right down the middle, whatever that means. That's just as unbiblical and destructive as being a single-issue church. Let me illustrate the way I think about this with three pictures. A target, a line of dominoes, and a swimming pool. First, you can think of a church doctrine as a series of concentric circles like an archery target. The bull's eye is the core doctrine from which increasingly derivative doctrines emanate. So they're coming out from that. Single-issue churches and middle-of-the-road churches both eliminate such distinctions. So the former reduces the target to one huge single-issue bull's eye. So all the target's about is homeschooling, okay? Maybe something like that. Where all it's about on, on the gay side of things is like open and affirming. Uh, so they, they eliminate all the distinctions and make it about uh, one thing there, and then the latter erases the emanating circles and does so to deny the le legitimate importance of derivative doctrines. In other words, a derivative doctrine would be like fencing the table. So we'll, we'll fence the table if you're here on Sunday. The scriptures say that outright. No, it's a consequence of things, just like the, tr uh, the triune nature of God is where you look at different places in scripture, you put it together, and, and that's where you see it's like uh, theological math, so to speak. But some math equations get further and further out, and they get more speculative. So some doctrines more spe speculative, and you want to make sure that... Um, that as the circles go out in complexity, that those things are less central to the mission of the church. That's why it's like concentric circles. And you don't want to get that wrong. There's ditches on two sides of the road. That way uh, we stay, the way we stay on the road that is to properly order primary and subordinate doctrines. That's a hard thing. Primary and subordinate doctrines. Like take, like I get emails often, are you a post-mill church? Well, we're a Westminsterian church, and they don't really take a hard view on um, eschatology. It's certainly Amil leaning, all those guys were. And I, I, that's my conviction. I think the convictions of the majority of, our, um, the majority of our elders here. But do you understand enough about eschatology to know how to get to post-millennialism? You know, or have you just listened to a bunch of post-mill guys and it made sense to you and you haven't done the hard theological work to get to that place. Can you defend it? Right? Every, I, I've seen people, I watched the guy the other night get totally rolled by an Eastern Orthodox guy. He tried to debate this guy, came all, you know, and this guy's not a dumb guy, but he thought that he was going to be able to dunk on this Eastern Orthodox uh, priest and he just beat the snot out of him. And uh, like, for example, I saw Greg Strawbridge get beat by James White and James White's a cradle Baptist. 
right? And that's a joke. <laughs> I know there's a bunch of Baptists here. Come on. It's too dry. Um, but, uh, but you actually, do you know how you get there? Do you understand the math, right? Have you done the work in Scripture? And if you don't do that, you can run into a lot of trouble. Now, second, you can think of primary doctrines as the initial domino in a long string of dominoes. Once you knock over a primary doctrine, the others begin to fall in place. So if you want to get a post-mill, I got there by realizing pre-mill was wrong uh, because of this reason, like a thousand never means a thousand, right? God actually owns the cattle on all hills, not just a thousand of them, right? It's like saying a gazillion bazillion when you're a little kid. This means a whole lot. It actually, it is better, is a thousand one days, is that like, it, is that better than uh, a day in God's court or what? You know what I mean? Better is a thousand, that whole deal. So um, I think what we, Zach, are you texting me? Am I going long? I'm going to keep going. I don't care. Um, but uh, anyhow, once you knock over those doctrines, the others start to fall in place. Uh, so the goal is to see the dominoes at the end of the string, a.k.a. derivative doctrines, uh, to be knocked over. However, we'll get there by one domino at a time. And it's very uh, tempting to start down the line with some favorite derivative doctrine, you know, whatever that is. Uh, however, if you do that, you'll cut yourself off from the doctrines, which makes everything fall in place. That's why you have to start with, that's why I love confessionalism. These are what the church has taught for years and years and years. Start with those key doctrines and you get there. Third, healthy churches are like swimming pools. They have both a shallow and deep end. Those who already can swim can just dive in the deep end. Those who can't wade in uh, deeper and deeper uh, and eventually learn to swim. All deep end will scare away those who can't swim. Some people come to reform churches and they don't know what's going on, right? It's super complicated. Uh, the language is foreign and they don't understand what's, what's up. Now, all shallow end will keep you from learning how to swim. Uh, stagnant churches, whether stagnant in quantity or quality, are usually of a single depth. They're single issue churches. That's why a lot of reformed churches don't grow because people don't understand. It's like going to another country. Now, the types of churches I think we should plant, and I'll summarize them really quick, are Reformed, Catholic, and unwoke. So Reformed, most people think being Reformed just means you subscribe to predestination or the five points of Calvinism or that you really, really like to argue. Um, that is a very truncated understanding of being Reformed, to say the least. Being Reformed should mean embracing the rich and diverse biblical mindset that arose during the Reformation period. This includes the discipline of interpreting Scripture with Scripture, the recovery of the doctrine of family, and appreciation of God's, appreciation of God's work in church history, the importance of uh, confessions, and so much more. Catholic, this is a word that's been tainted by its association with the Roman Catholic Church. It just means universal. The church exists in a general and particular sense. The general church is the entire tree. The particular churches are the branches. To be Catholic, then, is to require the things which are universal— to the entire tree throughout history. Right? That sort of Catholic doesn't deny the particularities of the branches. Quite the opposite. It's the result, it results in a culture of liberality that allows for differences within the church. So we want to have Catholic churches. This is a time here at East River, we actually allow to immersion baptism and, and pedo baptism. We do both, credo and pedo. And it's worked right now. And I, I hear people say, that will never work. I don't know what to tell you, man. Like, it is. And it's not that those things don't matter. It's not that we're laissez-faire on baptism. You must hold a position at this church. But if, it's got to be formed from Scripture and conviction. If you do that, we've decided right now, the world's on fire. We're not going to fight about that if you're catechizing your kids and calling them to faith, okay? That's what matters. I don't care when you baptize your kids. If you don't call them to faith and gospel and you don't catechize them, you're failing, right? You can baptize them as a baby, but if you don't do that, it's not, gonna, it's not magic in that way. Now, they also need to be unwoke. Now, this word's getting, this word, isn't it weird that cringe is a cringe word? Like, even when you say cringe, you feel stupid. And, and woke is stupid, too. It's like, it's like extreme. If you're from the 90s, like, every youth group was extreme, and, like, the, the X was a cross. And, and it wasn't extreme, which was the irony of it. But, um, so, I hate the word woke already. Um, and I'm always reluctant to define a ministry with an emphasis in a negative. I want us primarily to be known for the things 
which we stand. I think that's what you should do. People that focus on the negative have no positive vision, right? Like a lot of the Republicans right now are just not Trump. That's their goal. That's not going to work. Um, so, but it's become necessary to take a stand on this point because much of wokeness is being cloaked in reform doctrine. Uh, a church is known not just for what it affirms, but for also what it denies. What does it mean to be woke? It refers to being enlightened, a.k.a. woke, by some or all of the following bad doctrine, egalitarianism, critical race theory, statism, and cultural Marxism. This stuff has spread like wildfire through our once very trustworthy and conservative churches and denominations. It's been wild to see how quick these churches have fallen, and we shouldn't want any part of that. So reformed, Catholic, and unwoke. We need to plant those types of churches that focus on the word and sacrament, Sunday gathering. They need to interact with the issues of the day, but they cannot allow those things to supplant the main mission of the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you that you have brought us to good churches or even we, churches that maybe weren't perfect, that were impure, but still your word was taught and the word went forth and it affected us. It called us out of darkness into light. It strengthened us in repentance of sins that were wearing us down, keeping us from running the race the way we ought to. We thank you for the church, God. God, we pray for all the churches represented here that they would not allow their mission to be supplanted by uh, lesser things, but they would cling tightly to what it means to be a faithful uh, congregation. They would preach the word and apply it to all things, God. Raise up new churches. We pray that you would uh, plant churches all across America that would be faithful to your word, that would be generous towards the body of Christ and would hate hate the compromise that's passed off as enlightenment these days. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I'm Pastor Michael Foster, and you've been listening to County Before Country, a ministry of East River Church just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. Thank you for listening. The best way that you can help out this podcast is to leave a rating, a review, or share it with a friend.